What advice would you give an aspiring investor who's about a year behind you? I think it's, it's you know, kind of eat the elephant in bite-sized pieces. When you're starting out in multifamily, at least for me, it seemed very intimidating. It seemed like a very far goal and maybe something that we were never even going to accomplish. But when you break it down into the components and then just kind of tackle them one at a time, it suddenly becomes a very doable goal over time. So what do you need to get your first deal done? Well, you need a deal. You need investors. You probably need some amount of personal money. Break each one of those items down. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. It's uh, one of our first deal episodes, although it's not this couple's first deal. I'm also super excited because I've known these guys for quite a while. They've both been on the podcast as aspiring investors, and they have done a couple of deals since, and we're going to talk about one of them. So Jonathan and Paula Nichols, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Brian, thanks for having us. So excited to be here. Yeah. So this this is a lot of fun. And I I gotta say, my favorite episodes are always bringing one of the aspire one of the aspiring investors back and and talking about deals because you get to see, you know, a lot of the differences. But uh so before we kick into the the actual deal itself, let's talk about you guys. So go ahead and give give us an idea of your background. Tell us where you're from, who you are, and help us get to know you. Jonathan and Paula Nichols, we live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We've been married for almost five years now. And our story in real estate is that a few months after getting married, Paula informed me one day that we needed to find a hobby together. And so I said, a hobby? Why, why do we need to do that? You know, And um, you know, we kind of went back and forth on what that could possibly be, but didn't really come to any conclusions. Well, one day, a couple more months down the road, I stumbled across a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And through reading that book, like a lot of people, realized the value and opportunities that were available with real estate investing. And so, um, you know, I kind of mentioned to Paula, it was something that looked interesting. And um, she said, yeah, I think I'd be interested in kind of learning more about that, too. So from there, we dived in, began to learn about real estate investing. And long story short, over the next couple of years, bought a number of different residential properties across the Arlington, Texas area and converted them into short-term rentals. Um, But what we realized after doing that for a couple of years is that it wasn't really long-term scalable. And so like a lot of your listeners probably know, that's how we became interested in multifamily. We knew a number of people through our meetups and books and things like that who did multifamily. Um, and so we began to learn about multifamily. And um, we eventually wound up joining the the Michael Blanc program. I'm sure you're familiar with that, Brian. So uh, went through his program and um, with a little bit of time and some networking, we're able to um, co-GP on a deal and then JV on a deal and then eventually be the, the lead syndicators on a deal. So 
that's our that's our real estate story. I'll let Paula maybe fill in some more of the details about the rest of our background. Yeah, I think that a big catalyst in that journey of real estate has been um, Jonathan's background is in aerospace engineering and my background is in finance and management consulting. Um, and so we had very busy, you know, W-2 jobs and, it, you know, we're very much of achievers, worked really, really hard to get there, but we couldn't really see um all the effort that we were putting was not being paid off as fast as you know we were wanting. And so um, what enticed us about the real estate industry and us being um, entrepreneurs was to be able to really um, kind of receive uh, and move at the, at the pace that we wanted to move, which was pretty fast. And so um, I think that that was a big trigger for us um, just you know, Jonathan leaving his W-2 career to be full-time um, in multifamily and for me transitioning to um, real estate development as well um, as a W-2 um, job. So those were, I think it was a big trigger for us to, to transition from a hobby to a career yeah. uh, and be able to help a lot of people through it. Yeah. One, one of the guys that I, I partnered with, with a lot of my deals, um, he's he's made the point, the difference between a hobbyist in real estate and you know, when I, when I was investing in single family, I was really a hobbyist, you know, it was mm-hmm. pick up a family and you, you pick up a property here, you pick up a property there, but if you want to scale and actually quit your job, you've got to turn it into a business. I think you guys have, you're, you're well on your way. You know, you've got, you've got a lot of good traction, a lot of good uh, stuff going on for you. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about your why. I mean, your your motivation for doing this and a couple levels deeper than why you like apartments, but what's your guys' big burning why? I think it, it ties to what I was mentioning on our passion to progress in the career world. It wasn't just to, you know, um, scale or make a lot of money or uh, rise to the corporate ladder, um, but it was to really have an impact in our families and um, also in those, you know, friends that um, we spend life with. And so um, for me, I am Colombian. I was born and raised in Colombia and my parents, you know, are uh, immigrants to the U.S. And so the American dream was it was a big deal in my family. Um, and I just realized that through the corporate world, I was not able to help my parents retire or like help them achieve their goals. And in a way, although Jonathan's parents, you know, story is very different. Um, he also wanted to have an impact to, in his family. And we saw that through multifamily, we were able to um, grow and be able to provide a source for our family and friends to invest and be able to grow along with us. Yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's amazing. Jonathan, anything to add? Yeah. I mean, definitely everything that Paula said, you know, it, it's funny, Brian, because, you know, when you asked this question on the podcast, the, the first time that I had the opportunity to be on, it's, it's really the first time I thought about it in detail. And some people, you know, their why boils down to one specific thing. Mm-hmm. I think for me personally, there's a lot of different whys that kind of pull together, you know, the financial freedom aspect of it, the ability to have a larger impact on the people we know, whether that's our friends, our family. So let's talk about getting started in the industry. I mean, you've kind of alluded to it before. You kind of tar- talked about it, but what were the biggest challenges that you guys had going from you know W two and aerospace and development to get into multifamily investing? Yeah, I think um, I would boil down the them to kind of like three things. I might call them like the the three M's, and those are momentum, mindset, and money. So when you start off in real estate, you have a huge learning curve, um, regardless of what specific asset class you're going after. You have a huge learning curve in coming up to speed, 
And so there's kind of building that momentum and knowing what to do, how to analyze deals, how to find deals, being able to do that. And so that was true when we first started. And it was especially true when we transitioned to the multifamily world. Mindset, perhaps the most important of the three, um, is another big one. You know, we started, we never even dreamed that we would be able to purchase an apartment building. And I think most multifamily investors have had a very similar experience of having to come to grips with the fact that it is an achievable goal. Um, and then money, you know, our very first investment, we saved for months and months and months to build a purchase it. And most of the renovation on that residential property, we did ourselves mm -hmm. um, simply because that's what we were able to do and put in the sweat equity. And so you have to build the, the ability to purchase those properties. And yeah. so, you know, in residential, that might look like sweat equity. And then as you move to the multifamily world, that probably looks like the ability to raise capital, syndicate, have good partnerships. You have three really good points there. And I like how you brought them, up, brought them in as three different M's, momentum, mindset, and money. I like that, you know, and um, agree wholeheartedly. It's very much a momentum game. And it's like, pushing a huge stone up the hill, you know, at first it's really hard to get it going, but eventually, you know, you get it up to the top of the hill and it starts gaining speed by itself. But in uh, mindset as well, it's something that I struggled with, you know, four years ago, you know, I could barely wrap my head around an eight unit, you know, can I, can I stretch so far that I can buy an eight unit and money is, I, I think that's a challenge that a lot of people have up front uh, it's a challenge that a lot of people don't know they're going to have until they start trying to raise capital. Paula, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think he covered it. All right. So next question I want to ask is about your self-education. I know, um, Jonathan, you you mentioned the Michael Blanc program, but um, you know, what else did you guys do to, to learn the business? I'm all about using free resources. Mm -hmm. And then once you have exhausted or like build your foundations with free resources, then you can go ahead and start, you know, investing financially into some of those more, I'll say expensive resources. Um, but when it, for us, we started with podcasts, we started with listening to a lot of people that we um, respect and, and mentors that came up very organically through just going to um, meetups and, and getting to know people uh, who will be willing to share their journey. Um, but also just really reading books and podcasts really, really helped us to kind of build those strong foundations. And then from then on, um, really leveraging or not only your previous experience from corporate world, but also other people's experiences to propel us to, you know, to be able to achieve what we needed to. I love it. I love it. I think that's a path most people take. They they, they go through the podcast, the free or the very, you know, low hanging fruit, the the less expensive resources up front. I, I did the same thing. I probably listened to, you know, a few hundred hours worth of podcasts before I started spending money on, you know, information. And, you know, eventually, eventually I, I did, did a similar thing. I mean, I think Jonathan and I, I think we all met through the Michael Blanc network because um, we were all coaching students yeah. with him at one point. Right. Yeah. And I think like if you said like a timeline and a structure on your learning, that way you're not just like spending years just listening to the same podcast. But, you know, if you say in the next six months, I'm going to cover this much information, then at that point, I'm going to decide if I'm going to go and, and pay for a mentorship at Zerida. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a good approach. I think one, one advantage to the education programs is they will often have things lined up in the right order, you know, with podcasts. Yes. I mean, it doesn't matter how good the podcast is. It's, you know, one day they talk about, you know, 
item number 32 in the business. The next day, they're going to talk about 18 and two days later, number 96, right? So Yeah, you're right. And I, yeah. I actually took a, you know, money raising course and I, I loved how organized it was. And it was just, that's how my brain works. So you're right. And I think that um, there is a lot of value in that structured and well-developed information. I think that's that's the difference in my mind between the free content and, and the paid curated content. Um, yeah. Plus, if, if you're plus the guides, you know, if you, if you uh, some of the content you get has somebody who to guide you through it as well. And that's really the, the benefit of it. Um, yeah, um, I would say that, for example, like reading the book from Michael Blank on multifamily. I think that if you're not willing to sit down and study the book, for example, paying yeah. a mentorship is not going to get you there. So I think it's a good weed out. Um, yeah exercise or like really understand, do I have the bandwidth and do I have the interest in this type of business? And so, um, good foundational, you know, and I, I'm, I'm going to flip it on its head a little bit and say, paying a lot of money for the mentorship program actually helped me commit to a course of action. Yes. 100%. I mean, I, Very I, true. I, I read Michael Blanc's book, you know, I read a couple other books. I, you know, I, I've got several books on that bookshelf behind me that you can't see because of my, you know, virtual background, but I read all of them and I had listened to like hundreds of hours of podcasts, but when it came time to, to write that $25,000 check to Michael Blanc, that really is what I think helped me to commit you know, if it was a $2,000 check, I probably could have, you know, written a $2,000 check and walked away and been like, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to have $2,000, 25. That was enough money at the time that it was just, it was, it was a big decision and it helped me commit. So yeah, there, we there's definitely value to that as well. It was, it was a committal process. Can yes. you do that without, you know, a $25,000 check? Yes. You know, uh, can you get the information without joining a program? Yes, but I think there's a lot of benefit to it. So let's let's talk about um, the deal specific stuff. So I know you guys, you know, came in as co GPs on a, a property in Oklahoma. I want to say Tulsa, right? Correct. And then you guys did a JV deal. Um, and then you guys were lead sponsor on one in College Station. So we're going to talk today about that lead sponsor in, in College Station. So um, tell us just broad brushstroke overview of the deal. And after that, I, I definitely want to start talking team. So let's let's talk deal first and then team. Sure. I can kind of give the overview of the deal. So um, as you already mentioned, it's a 75 unit um, A-class townhome style property in College Station, Texas. It's located about a half mile from the edge of the university campus. And um, it came to us as an off-market deal through a broker relationship that I had. And essentially, this broker had very little interest in the College Station market or knowledge of it, but stumbled due to a relationship he had with the seller, stumbled across the property and um, thought of us because Paul and I both went to Texas A&M mm -hmm. and um, he said, Hey, I've got a great deal for you. Um, would you like to look at it? And as soon as he said, Hey, 2012 a class, I thought eh, this isn't going to work because, you know, anyone knows in this market today, you, you can't even get a B class to pencil out more or less an A class. Right. Yeah. But you know, I, I like everyone believe you got to do the reps if you're going to find a deal. And so I underwrote it. And was surprised that it wasn't as far off as as what I thought it would be. And so mm -hmm. I messaged him back and said, 
Hey, actually, I, you know, I can't quite hit this price, but I could hit this price mm-hmm. and, um, didn't expect to hear back from him. But, you know, a week later he came back and said, well, you may actually be in striking range. And so long story short, we wound up getting the deal. And, um, I think the, honestly, Brian, I think the biggest reason that it didn't get snatched up is because a lot of other folks who might've had the opportunity to look at it, Mm -hmm. just overlooked it because it was an A class and because it was new and didn't have rehab value add. Mm -hmm. But when I took time to study the deal, I realized that it was owned by a mom and pop owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, great people, but you know, trying to do everything themselves, didn't have a website for the property, didn't market the property. The property's a hundred percent occupied at well below market rents. And so literally we developed a business plan that consisted of going in, putting in a professional property management company, building out a website and marketing plan and bringing the units both through renewals and new leases up to market rent. And so we put very little capex into the property and we're hitting above even what we thought the the market rents were right off the bat. So um, it's been a great project. Yeah. Now something else, um, how big is the college station area? It's a little over a quarter million people. Um, So, you know, it's, it's Bryan and college station, two towns lumped together. College stations, obviously the university town, Bryan's the, normal town. And, um, yeah, so it's about a quarter million with, with about 60,000 of that being students. Okay. Yeah. I I think that might be something that, uh, may have kept other people from, I mean, Houston's a big market. Dallas is a big market. Austin's a big market and college station is like right in the center of that triangle, but it's far enough away from each one. And I'm, I'm curious if a lot of people overlooked it because, you know, college station, I, I don't, I don't think anybody realizes anything is there besides Texas A&M, right? That's right. And so I think that we had that opportunity to bring our knowledge of the market. You know, we both lived there for many years. And so now a lot of people live there and we did a lot of research because we didn't want to be biased, right? We didn't want to say like, well, we love the town, so we have to buy the deal there. And so we did a lot of research on the market, the population growth, employment. Um, They're bringing a lot of businesses into uh, the school. And then the the endowment of Texas A&M is like higher than Yale's uh, or at par. And so our school, you know, it's not going anywhere. And there's a lot of people that um, continue to support the school, uh, which brings a lot of safety into the town, as well as attracts a lot of, you know, companies to come um, for, you know, to hire students and different things like that. So um, we did a lot of research to make sure that it was a town that was sound. And then also visiting it, like, you know, my sister, went to AM even after we did. And so we got we kept going to the town even afterward. And it just continues to grow and be extremely is extremely well kept. Um so it's it's a hidden gem and I'll I will say. Yeah. And there, there's there's a couple of things that I'd like to point out. I mean you guys had the competitive advantage because you both lived there for some time. You knew the area extremely well. And you know it's probably some place that you guys are just fine going back to. And I think that's, those two things are really big in selecting a market. I mean, you, you obviously have to do research on the market like you guys did as well, but those are a couple of things in my mind that, you know, maybe they're a little further down the list than the the market research, but I think those are also important factors as well. You know, if, if you have to, man, I've got to go to that property again, you know, that that's not a good situation, but I mean, college station, it's like, Hey, there's an AM football game next week. Let's go visit our property. 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tax write-off too. So as long as you, as long as you visit the property, but um, anyway, yeah. So let's talk about the team now, you know, real estate is a team sport. Um, who else came in with you on this, on this project? And I think more importantly, how did you meet those guys? Um, you know, I like that you asked this question, Brian, because, you know, one of the, I guess, um, misnomers I had about multifamily when we first started, even when we signed up for the mentorship is that we were going to be basically everything on the deal. We were going to raise the money, find the deal, manage the deal. And if you really want to buy a large multifamily, unless you just happen to have a lot of money, you need a team. Yep. I, I don't think I will ever do a deal without partners because I value the additional skill sets. And obviously I have a, a built-in partner with Paula, but then even partners beyond her, you know, I value the additional skill sets, the different perspectives, um, and the accountability that comes with partnerships. Um, and so our team, um, as far as the other GPs consisted of a, a KP, who's a gentleman that we had met early on in our, mm -hmm. um, investing career before we were even in multifamily. And he's actually one of the first people that we went and had dinner with to discuss multifamily investing because he had done a few deals and we just said, Hey, how did you do this? And so, you know, it was really cool because we've been trying to do a deal with him for a long time, but just hadn't worked out. And so, you know, kind of came full circle and he was essentially our KP, if you will, on this deal. Now, um, just, just real quick, I'm going to explain KP. Sure. The key principle is the person who comes in and helps you qualify for a loan. Um, in most cases, there are other things they can do, but to get a commercial loan, you have to have somebody with a significant net worth and you have to have somebody with a lot of experience um, on the team. So that's essentially what KPs come in and provide. So go ahead and keep going from there. Oh, absolutely. And so, um, and one of the cool things about him is that he's a very active KP, you know, he's, he's a GP and a KP, if you yes. will, you know? Um, and I, I really liked that. Uh, beyond that, we had a couple other um, co-GPs who helped us raise equity for the deal and provide other value to the deal, you know, assisting with asset management and stuff. Um, and they were individuals who we'd worked with before on previous projects, um, and so we had them, them join the project as well. Um, I think my big thing on, on looking for potential partners or the advice I would give building a team is that, you know, you want to make sure first that the person has integrity. That's the most important thing. Um, I've seen too many things lately where, you know, partnerships that fall apart and stuff because of a lack of integrity. And so you really want to make sure that you know the person well, mm -hmm. and that takes time. Um, I think the, the second thing is competency. You know, are they able to do whatever it is that you're pulling them into the team? If they need to raise money, are they able to raise money? If they need to manage, are they able to manage? Um, and I think final thing that some people overlook is, do you like working with them? Do you yeah, like the know. person? <laughs> you know, you're, important. you're stuck with these people for, you know, say three to six years, depending on your business plan. And so do you enjoy talking to them on a weekly basis? So Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's kind of the high level of how we put our team together. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Great, great overview. And I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. You, you really need a team put together for that stuff. And there's, there's lots of good reasons to, to like the people that you work with, you know, that's, that's very important. Um, I've talked with a lot of people recently, I'm, I'm in a spot where I can KP on deals right now, which is a lot of fun actually, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of objective criteria, but my one big glaring subjective thing is I got to like you, you know, and that's, <laughs> you can't put numbers behind that. You can't evaluate that. It's just like, 
I either like you or, eh, you know, so, yeah, or, or I don't, you know, but uh, anyway, good, good overview on that one. So let's talk about the capital raising. And I think Paula, you said you're going to take that one. I think that, you know, this is something that you may not be able to educate yourself in, but you just, part of it is like, you have to, to learn as you do it. And, um, to be honest, that was a skill that I did not know I had, mm-hmm. um, until I was put in the position of, okay, we have a deal. How are we going to do that? Or we're looking for a deal. How do we raise, you know, funds for it? And, um, I did take, take a couple of courses about it. And, um, I think that the, the piece that really helped us on this deal was long-term relationships. It was, the most rewarding part, I feel like, of being in real estate and multifamily syndications, you know, approach is that I get to go and talk with, you know, friends and previous co-workers and yeah. previous leaders and previous mentors that look at me and said, 100%, I trust you. I, I believe in you. I, I want to invest with you because I've seen your track record, because I've seen, you know, the quality of work that you deliver. And for me, that has been very rewarding and really um, eye opening. And so um, that has been a really, really great experience. And obviously, at times it's a little stressful because, you know, you have a set number that you have to raise and there's a closing date. Um, but I think that God has been really faithful and has opened that opportunity to you know, it's it's more of me giving them an opportunity for them to invest in something that's going to, you know, help them and bless them long term versus the opposite of me earning or gaining something through that process. And so um, raising capital for this deal was was awesome. And it was a really great um, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, partnering as well and having people that are raising along with us so that you're not, um, you know, maybe buying too much Um and are prepared for closing. Yeah. What was the overall capital raise on this project? Jonathan, can you remind me? 2.7. Oh, 2.7. Okay. 2.7 million. Yeah. That's, that's a nice chunk of change to, to try to be raising. Um, now, what, I, I don't think we've, we've mentioned this earlier. What was the total purchase price? Um, 8.6. Okay. All right. So, um, I am going to throw a little curveball. This wasn't in what we, you know, what I sent you out earlier, but I'm sure you guys can take this. Um, what type of loan did you get on this property? Yeah, so that's a good question. We used a, uh, a CMBS lender out of California. Okay. Um, I won't mention the name, but we we found them through a, a broker. I decided on this deal early on. I wanted to use a mortgage broker mm-hmm. um, to select a loan with the specific terms that I was looking for, which was, of course. Um, certain LTV, um, you know, the lending environment the last couple of years has been very friendly towards bridge loans where you need a lot of CapEx. And this property was not that, Mm -hmm. um, we didn't need a lot of CapEx. And so I was really trying to find a lender that could work with the specific property in terms that we're looking for. Um, overall, uh, I think we did, we, as a team did very well working with them, you know, provided them what they need, got it across the finish line. Uh, there were definitely some some challenges along the way, specifically working with a, a mortgage broker um, and not directly with a lender where I had, you know, initially direct communication with them. Yeah. Um, and so some of that miscommunication created some challenges, but ultimately we got the terms you're looking for and got across the finish line. Yeah. 
You know, and there there's pros and cons, and I got a love hate relationship with brokers in general. You know, brokers are always the middleman, and sometimes they help you. You know, sometimes they they get in the way, in my opinion. But uh, in, in this case, you know, if you had a specific terms and you weren't sure where to go, I think I think that that's exactly when you need a broker. You know, you leverage their um, their rolodex. You know, a broker does business because. They know many different people, many different products, many different vendors. And when you come to them, they can point you to the right one, make that and and connect the dots for you. Um, but you're I, I think you hit the nail on the head with them as well. You know, a lot of time the broker stays in the middle and, uh, you know, that's exactly what the word broker is, but uh, they broker the deal. And sometimes that leads to miscommunications. But I go back and forth on that one. We've used uh, mortgage, the lending brokers before, and we've get, had several deals where we've gone straight to banks as well and um, pros and cons to both directions. So absolutely. So good. Good on that one. All right. So let's talk about getting to the closing table. And were there any big snags along the way? I think that it's worth mentioning that when we were awarded the deal, we were in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so we were finally taking some a break of work from work and we were vacationing and then we were awarded the deal. And so you never know when the deal is going to come. And so obviously we were like, yes, of course, we're going to take it and we're going to work through our vacation. And so we balanced that. And there was, you know, a lot of decisions that needed to be made um, through um, the conversation. I'll let Jonathan kind of fill in those details, but um I would say that it was not easy. It was just the timing is never going to be perfect, but um, it worked out well for us. And you guys just got back from Europe too, right? Yes, that's correct. We went to Scandinavia. So, so fun fact, I got my first deal under contract from Bogota, Colombia. Oh, yes. I know. I love I'm it. not joking either. It was from Bogota, Colombia. And I remember it's because you were in the right place. I was in the right place. I, I may be a little biased. <laughs> yeah. Colombia is awesome. Now you said you were from Colombia. Are you from Bogota? I'm not. Okay. But it's still but that's okay. It's Colombia. That's okay. But I mean, the whole country's cool, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Jonathan, your wife said you were going to uh fill in some gaps there. So yeah, absolutely. So I think there was kind of two different mm-hmm. challenges. Um, getting it to the closing table. The first is just, especially going through this process the first time as a lead syndicator, you know, we'd gone through, I had done a JV deal, you know, I knew the basics, all that. We'd gone through his co-GP. So we weren't like ignorant or uneducated, but when you walk through the first time, um, there are some challenges. And so, you know, while in Europe, you know, with challenging phone service, et cetera, you know, lining up our KP, lining up the lending environment, because mm-hmm. um, one thing on this deal is we had to put 1% hard earnest money day one mm-hmm. when we signed the PSA. Yeah. And so you need to have every duck in a row before you put your name on that line and making sure oh, yeah. we had a prop, a property manager that agreed to our budget and our performa rents, mm-hmm. making sure we had the KP in line, making sure we had lending terms that were satisfactory. Those were all big things that we had to initially sort out. Once we had those, it went pretty smooth for quite a while. DD was a breeze. Everything was in great shape. It's an A-class property built in the last 10 years. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We got to meet meet the owners, which was mm -hmm. something unique. Uh, Right before we left to Europe, we went and visited and we got to meet them. And so that was such a great opportunity to build that personal report and like Mm -hmm. hear their story and become... Um, you know, you don't get to become friends right away on one meeting, but I think that we, we really like 
created a good impression with them. And so they were very easy to work with in a way. They were very open um, and being willing for us to, you know, walk through the property and ask questions and provide us with all the information, um, you know, very transparent. So that helped our closing um, and our hard money decision. I love that. I love that. Now, I, I, I will say that, you know, several years ago, you know, three, four years ago, it was common to you put your earnest money in and it's one percent of the deal typically, but it doesn't go hard till the end of due diligence period. At that time, you know, I didn't mind putting a contract in on a property that I wasn't 100 percent sure on because mm-hmm. you had 30 days of due diligence to figure it out. But now when when hard money comes in day one and you have either half or all of your earnest money deposit that's non-refundable. Um, I think it's forcing a lot of operators to make sure their I's are dotted, T's are crossed before going in. Um, and you, you got to be sure that you've done your homework first before putting that offer on the table. But uh looks like you guys did that from, you know, halfway across the world and, and made it work out. All right. So let's talk about the property after closing and how it's gone since. Yeah. So I'll speak a little bit, maybe more to this particular section, just because I do a lot of the asset management on the particular project. So um, right after we closed, uh, overall things, things went well. We got a good cadence going with our property manager, um, you know, started rolling with our business plan. But because everyone wants to hear about the challenges, I'll talk about a couple of challenges that we had. Um, So one challenge we had right off the bat is our um, fire system. We knew that we had a couple things on it that were going to need to be replaced. But um, after going in, several other things continued to break on the fire system, even though it's a new property. Yeah. And, you know, that created a lot of, you know, unanticipated CapEx up front that we had to spend to get that system in compliance yeah. with the city. So and so cheap either. No, it's not. And uh, fortunately, we had, you know, even though this wasn't a high CapEx project, we did have CapEx funds and healthy reserves and were able to take care of it. But, you know, of all the things that you might think about going into a property that you're going to have to spend money on, you know, replacing a few thousand dollars worth of fire stuff is maybe not what you expect. So I, I guess my point is be ready for things like that with your reserves and your contingency going in. Um, a second thing that I wasn't prepared for that we did not know from the owners after doing DD and everything is that there had been a series of vehicle break-ins on the property. Um, so you have to understand this is a great area of college station. It's not by any means a, um, rundown area or any kind of problems like that. But, you know, a couple of weeks after we closed, my property manager calls me and says, Hey, we've had a break-in on a vehicle on the property. And tenants have said that there's been a couple more even before we closed. Yeah. And so we said, well, what are we going to do? And so we immediately devised a plan to update the lighting on the property to some mm-hmm. new LED lighting that was going to make it much brighter at night. Um, we redid the whole gate code configurations and, you know, uh, you know, re-messaged the tenants to make sure that only they had the codes for the property. And then we engaged the, the police department there and, Fortunately, another week after that, when the the culprits tried to attempt another break in, the police department was able to apprehend them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just once again on an A class property in a great area. It was a challenge that we weren't expecting. Yeah. Um, but you know, honestly, I think with with both of these, it's something that I'm proud of. That you know, we were able to come in and bring value to the tenants by giving them a safer place to live. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, both through the fire and through that. And, you know, we've added a lot of other amenities and stuff to the property as well. Uh, and that's part of running the business, but you know, any listeners that are looking to go into asset management, these are some of the unanticipated type of challenges that you could face on a property. Yeah. And it's, it's also a good reason why you always have a little slush fund in your CapEx budget. Um, one thing I'm just going to, to, you know, double down on that you said is your tenants see what you do. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you are responsive you know, a couple of car breaks in, you add lighting, you know, they're going to see that and they're going to, they're going to understand that you guys are trying to make the place better. You're responsive. Um, it doesn't immediately translate to dollars and cents, but it does translate to dollars and cents. You're, you're going to instill a sense of community there. They're going to want to take care of the place a lot better. And you're going to end up with a higher renewal rate, which saves you money in the long run because you don't have the churn costs and you don't have the vacancies and everything else. So being able to be responsive to stuff like that is, is absolutely crucial in this business. All right. So we, we're coming towards the, the final stretch. A um, couple of questions for you guys. You know, first one, what's next? Um, I can try to answer that question, but I'll let Jonathan compliment it. Um, I think that We are actively looking for opportunities and continuing to grow our portfolio of multifamily. Um, You know, as you guys are aware, like it's very competitive out there. So I think that uh, one thing that I, you know, me and Jonathan always come to agreement is, yes, we're going to underwrite a lot of deals and we're going to put a lot of LOIs, but we're never going to make a bad deal. Um, And so I'm not saying to never make a bad deal, but we're never going to make a poor choice or just, just to get a deal done. And so we are very disciplined on that. And so what's next is to continue to grow our portfolio and provide opportunities to our investors to invest. And so uh, we have a a few projects in the pipeline for that. um, And, are looking forward to continue to grow that. I, I really enjoy the deal finding aspect of the multifamily business. So I spend a lot of time looking at deals, talking to brokers, putting in offers like Paula mentioned. The I would say the level that we're at right now, it's hard to keep a consistent deal flow to always have a deal f- for our investors. And so we also are, are taking advantage of co-GP opportunities still and you know helping other partners that have helped us and bringing value to them. And then that also provides our investors with consistent deal flow. And um, I'm actively looking for deals. And uh, that's, that's really, I think, the part I enjoy doing the most, although, although I enjoy all the business. So yeah, continuing to find deals, bring value to our investors, bring value to our partners. Um, here comes the most important question of the entire podcast. So if you get, like I said earlier, you got to nail this one. So no pressure at all, you know, what advice would you give an aspiring investor who's about a year behind you? That's that's a tough thing. Obviously, there's there's a lot of advice kind of sprinkled in this whole conversation, but yeah. to boil it down to one thing, um, I think it's it's you know kind of eat the elephant in bite sized pieces. So you know when you're starting out in multifamily, at least for me, it seemed very intimidating. It seemed like a very far goal and maybe something that we were never even going to accomplish. Mm -hmm. But when you break it down into the components and then just kind of tackle them one at a time, it suddenly becomes a very doable goal over time. So what do you need to get your first deal done? Well, you need a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, You need investors. Um, You probably need some amount of of personal money. Um, You know, and so break each one of those items down that you need. You know, if you need a deal, start talking to brokers or look for a partner who can source a deal that you can co-GP on. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for investors, 
you know, build a, a sample deal package and start talking to a couple a week, you know, break it down into very small bites and just be consistent with tackling those. And then over time, you know, you'll build on your achievements to the point where you have that first deal done. So that, that would be my advice. Love it. Anything to add, Paula? Yeah, I think for my, for me, like the biggest lesson has been limited beliefs, which was in a way bought by creating more smaller bites. Um, and so I would just say, like, really believe in yourself and believe that that you're able to if you put enough uh, work and you put enough, um, you know, effort, like there is really not it's not impossible for you to accomplish what you said. Love it. Priceless advice. And then last question, how can listeners learn more about you guys? Yeah. So our business name, Paul and I are are co-founders of Apogee Capital, um, our multifamily investing business. And so we have a website, which is www.apogeemse.com. And so you can go there and learn a little bit more about us and see maybe some of their podcasts we've been on. We have a free ebook, all that stuff. Um, I personally am very active on LinkedIn. And so feel free to reach out to me there. You know, would love to talk to anyone who's interested in getting to multifamily, whether that be, you know, active or maybe you want to passively invest, um, just reach out and happy to chat. Love it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. And Apogee Capital, I mean, you're an aerospace engineer, so it makes a lot of sense, right? You're probably one of the first people that got that without it. I know. An explanation, Brian. So that just means, yeah. that just means you're a smart cookie. <laughs> no, my, my son's favorite game is Kerbal Space Program. So anyway, it's it's something he is he aspires to be an aerospace engineer one day. You know, he wants to put rockets on the moon. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's fun. But um, anyway, thanks for coming on the, the podcast today. Very much appreciate your time. Thanks for having us, Brian. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already, and then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.